As we return to Hebrews chapter 2, we come to a part of this warning that's been given, a warning we've been looking at over the last few weeks, but it gives an establishment, if you will, for that warning. Why is it so serious to not heed the message that we've received? Well, the author today will give us those reasons, and so we want to look at it. In fact, verses 3 and 4, I guess the continuation of 3 and all of 4, give us the basis for which we should recognize the difference in the warning that's being given here when compared to the warning that he's speaking of in the Old Covenant. And that's what we looked at last Sunday morning. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But as we consider this text today, I want us to think about two things. First of all, the salvation declared with authority. That's going to be a primary point of the author here, the salvation declared with authority. And second of all, the salvation confirmed with power or by power. So again, you can see from the title of the sermon, God also bearing witness, there is something said in this text about the testimony of God in the gospel itself. And we'll see the author of Hebrews make that point. So beginning with our first point, this salvation confirmed by power, I would ask you just to consider as we begin our exposition this morning that we're returning to this warning passage. Now this is the first of many such warning passages throughout Hebrews But it's an important one. Immediately we're met with a warning that we are to give the more earnest heed. To what? Well, the author says to the things that we have heard. We need to pay attention to those things that we've been taught, the gospel message, the testimony given to us. We need to pay more earnest heed, more careful attention to these things because if we do not, there is a danger in drifting away. Now, we preached that text already, so we don't need to go into it in depth, but it reminds us to stay anchored to the gospel truth that we've received because there is a danger of moving or being swept along without even realizing it, a danger to, being, to drifting away. And uh, you may remember that that text moved into right, right at what we looked at last Sunday morning, which is a comparison, if you will, and contrast between the first covenant and this covenant. And the author of Hebrews says, if that first covenant, which was mediated by angels, had just uh, punishments for those who ignored it and neglected it, and did not live rightfully before it, then by comparison and contrast, how much more serious will the consequences be for those who've heard this testimony and ignore it? So you may remember in that argument, he contrasts, he says, Uh, In fact, really, this is built upon the entirety of the first chapter, isn't it? The first chapter argues that Christ is greater. Christ is greater than the angels. Well, if that is established in the first chapter, which it is, then the covenant that he mediates, Christ mediates, must necessarily be greater than the covenant that was mediated by angels. And we spoke last Sunday that you don't find that in Exodus 19 or 20. It's hinted at later in that book, excuse me, in the Torah, but... It's found in other places, and certainly in Stephen's testimony and in Paul's testimony, it is seen that angels mediated mediated on the heavenly side that original covenant. Uh, Moses, the mediator on the human side, and so it was a double mediated covenant, and yet it is covenanted, excuse me, mediated solely in Christ, uh, the God-man, in this new covenant. And so we recognize there is something unique and special about this one. But if this is a greater covenant... And the Old Covenant, which was mediated by angels, carried sure punishments for those who violate or neglected it. How much more serious 
will be the consequences for neglecting this covenant. In fact, really the entirety of chapter 1 was given to us to establish this point. And that's what he says here. Listen to it again. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, we're going to continue forward. That's as far as we've gotten so far uh, over the past couple of weeks. But again, there is something said to us here. It is implied there is no escape for those who neglect this salvation. There is no backup plan. There is no other way. Christ alone is the way to salvation. If you neglect this salvation, then my friends, there is no hope. There is no hope. And so again, we've been walking through this and, and tried to understand it. We use the example of a, of a captain. It's a, a commonly given of a captain who's bringing a ship into the harbor. In fact, some people think this might be what was in the author's mind. And he's near the harbor, but he loses focus for a time and is swept just past the safety of the harbor into the storm. Now, my friends, how would that happen? How would a captain lose sight, lose focus on his primary responsibility at that moment, which was to make sure that ship gets into the harbor? And the answer is, he took his eyes off what really mattered. He was focused on the wrong thing. He must have felt, hey, I'm in safety, I'm in security. Uh, I'm going to make it into the harbor. I'm not even worried about it. In other words, he came so close and yet wasn't focused on the proper things. Now, this is an illustration we can see in real life. In fact, not too long ago, uh, I saw a documentary on the, uh, what was it, the Concordia, the, the cruise ship in Italy a few years back, that the captain had his girlfriend uh, up in the, in the captain's, uh, whatever you call that, the, the steering portion of the ship. He had his girlfriend up there and wasn't paying attention and ran the ship aground. My friends, often this happens. People are misfocused. And what this author is warning you is, have you considered that you can come so close to being a Christian? You can be around the people of God, have heard the gospel of God, have heard it testified to. You can be so close. And yet maybe even through a feeling of security in your religiosity, take your eyes off what truly matters, that is Christ, never having placed your faith in Him, and wreck the ship. My friends, that is the warning that is given to us here, and it is a serious warning. Because it would inform us that there are people who come very near salvation and yet miss the safe harbor of faith. So, my friends, we need to think about it. In fact, the song we just sang, Not In Me, is almost the perfect message tied to that, isn't it? Because it's making the point, there's nothing I can do, there's no amount of religion I can do to make myself right with God. It's by faith in Christ alone. And so again, this author is saying, make sure you've heard that message and that you give the more earnest heed to that message, lest you drift away. And again, the danger of drifting is it happens so small and so slowly you don't even know you have drifted away. And so again... This is important to think about. So, the author comes through all of this and he's told us that there is a danger both to drifting away and neglecting so great a salvation. 
And yet today he's going to establish why that should never happen. If you've heard the gospel message, I mean, clearly it does. But if you hear the logic that he's using here, it's so self-evident. He says, how can we neglect so great a salvation? Now listen to how he establishes this. Which at first began to be spoken by the Lord. Now we've already heard in chapter 1 that Christ by himself or by his body purged our sin. Christ is the one who paid the price for sinners that we might be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. He by himself did this work. Now that doesn't mean the uh, Father and Spirit were not involved in this redemption work, does it? But it does mean that Christ is the one upon the cross who paid the price. Christ is the one through whom Uh, If you will, the sacrifice was made. He was the perfect high priest and the perfect sacrifice. The redemption was made in His blood upon the cross. So again, He is the one who did this, if you will. But He's also the first to testify to it. Now, we might get a little confused here. We'd say, well, but the Old Testament prophets pointed to this. That is true. But the intention of the author here is He's the first one to proclaim the finished work of the gospel that the price had been paid, that reconciliation with God is made through Christ Jesus to all who place faith in Him. Again, we can see this. He says that He is the first, He is the the arche, the beginning, the first, if you will, moment, the first action within an era, if you will. He was the first one to preach this. Now, where could this be said? Well, if you read the... uh, Uh, The post that we just put up on our blog, it could be referring to on the cross where he says it is finished. And in essence, he's saying the work is now complete. Could also be the early church testified that Christ went into the dead and proclaimed victory over death and hell, taking the keys to death and hell. Or it can simply mean when he resurrected, he went to the, the apostles and disciples and explained to them what he had accomplished. Any way you want to place that timing, the message is the same. Christ is the first to proclaim the finished work that He had accomplished in purging our sins upon the cross in His own body. So again, the author wants you to be clear on this. Christ testified to this message. You might say, well, I I heard it from someone else, but Christ is the first. And my friends, that tells you the authority of the message itself. Christ didn't simply go to the cross, die, and rose again. He told you the significance of what He did. That He went to the cross, became a curse for us, took our sin upon His account, paid the price that we might stand in His righteousness. He rose from the dead, the Father testifying that although your testimony of Christ was He was guilty, the resurrection vindicates Him as who He said He was, the Son of God. And so, my friends, again, as you look at all this, Christ Himself was the first to testify to the new covenant. doesn't mean there weren't those that came before that spoke of what was to come, but He was the first to preach the new covenant message of the completed work. And so the author tells us that. He was the first in this, if you will, this era of new preaching. And notice also that it says that this preaching was done by kurios, the Lord, This is no insignificant term. The author is telling you even here that this is, in fact, 
Christ the Lord who first preached this message. Make no mistake about it. This is not something disciples made up. You know, if you watch uh, A&E, Discovery, any of those channels that love to have their uh, liberal Christian scholars on, any program on Christianity, they'll always say, well, really, we're not sure what happened to Jesus. We have to trust that the disciples uh, told us. Well, the author of Hebrews says, nonsense, Jesus told you what happened. He told those disciples what happened. He explained the significance to them. He explained the significance to them. All right, so that is the first point, but it doesn't end there because these recipients say, well, we didn't hear it from Jesus. We didn't personally see the risen Christ. We didn't hear it from Him. Well, we didn't either in one sense, right? We haven't stood before the risen Christ who proclaimed His gospel to us in person. Now, we're going to come back to that idea in just a moment. But these recipients didn't either. See, look at what continues from there. Look at the end of verse 3. So this great message of salvation, so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, now listen to this, and was confirmed to us, the author and the recipients, to us by those who heard Him. Now before we exposit that, I want to sidebar for just a second. Because we made an argument the very first Sunday that Paul is not the author of this letter. Now the church has traditionally held that Paul is the author, but there are a number of places that you would have trouble reconciling Pauline authorship with this, and here is one of them. Here is one of them. Think again what this author says. That uh, first spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. This author is claiming he never heard from the risen Christ. Is that Paul's argument? In fact, chapters 1 of Galatians, verse 1 and 11, makes very clear that Paul argues the opposite of that. He says, I did not receive my revelation from others, but received it directly from Christ Jesus. So again, you cannot, it's hard for me to find a way to juggle what is said here with the idea that Paul wrote this letter. Now, many of the themes are the same. We went through this that first sermon. It is online Uh, If you weren't here for it, you can go back and listen. But again, this author says, asserts, I never heard revelation directly from Christ, just like you all. We didn't hear from Christ. We heard from those who heard Him. This is one of the reasons, by the way, Luther said this is Apollos, an Alexandrian Jew. The reasoning is right. The logic and language are right. Someone who heard from the apostles, but not from Christ directly. Again, Heaven only knows, right? We've we've talked about that. But again, back to this. Our author claims he received the gospel from those who heard from Jesus directly, as did the recipients of this letter. And so we need to think about this for just a moment because, uh, again, he's saying that there's something important here. Uh, There is an authoritative message given by Christ, the Son Himself. But not all of us received it from the Son Himself. I mean, we did indirectly that is the argument of the author but we heard it from those who heard him now what you want to think about for a moment is what he's arguing here we heard it from the apostles we heard it from the apostles not from christ apostolos what does that mean it means emissary ambassador he's saying we didn't hear it from christ himself but we did hear it from his emissaries 
his ambassadors. Now, again, it would be hard to dismiss then the importance of what was said because Christ, like any king, chooses his emissaries. You know, you just didn't declare, I'm going to be an apostle. That's the mockery of all these apostles, so-called, running around today that are self-appointed apostles. Christ appointed his apostles. And again, so the king has chosen these messengers who brought this message out to you. They brought it out. And they, uh, the New King James and NESB say, they confirmed it. ESV, I think, says they testified to it, to this gospel message. Christ spoke it first. They brought it to you, confirming what he said and testifying to it. They heard it directly from him. They testified to this great salvation. So you have a dependable and reliable reason for establishing, being established in the faith. You heard it from his apostles. You heard it from his apostles. Now, they proclaimed it to you, the message of their master. They proclaimed it. So this author says whether you heard it from Christ or from his emissaries, it's exactly the same. You heard the same message, the same gospel. The same authoritative message. You heard it either way. And further, they heard it declared, these hearers heard it declared directly from those who answered to Christ, his emissaries. Now this is language that has far less import to us today than it would have in their day. They would have known exactly what it meant for there to be an emissary from Caesar. It wasn't like, oh, it's not Caesar. I don't have to listen. If Caesar rode into your town and declared a new law, and you disobeyed that law, you're going to fall under the full weight and punishment of Rome. No question about it. Any person in that age would have clearly understood this. But you say, oh, I'm in a different village. Caesar didn't come here. He only sent one of his emissaries. His emissary explained and declared the new law. It's not as binding. How's that argument going to go for you before the Roman authorities? Did you hear the message from someone sent under the power and authority of Caesar? Yes. And you've testified against yourself. That's the point. So again, the question is this. You have heard the message declared by the ambassadors, the emissaries of Christ. Those apostles he chose to bring this message out into the world. And you've heard it. You heard it in full. You heard it just as if he himself spoke it to you. So the question is, how will you escape so great a salvation if you neglect it? How will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? I guess I should word it this way. How will you escape the sure punishment that will come if you neglect so great a salvation? My friends, again, if the Old Covenant confirmed, mediated, if you will, by angels carried punishments for those who neglected it. How much more sure and serious are the punishments that await those who neglect this salvation? Testified to, not only mediated, but testified to by the Son Himself. And then you heard it from His chosen emissaries. My friends, how will you escape this authoritative message? But it's not just that you received it from those who Christ appointed Uh, to proclaim the message to you. It's not as if you just uh, received a message 
given in human words. But it brings us to our second point because this salvation was confirmed by power or in power. This message was not only declared by authority, but confirmed with power. Isn't that what it says here? Look at the rest of the the text for today. Look at verse 4. So after saying, let's start with verse 3 again, because he says, um, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. Now listen to this. God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His own will. Now, there's much that can be said about this, but it's not just that you received emissaries from the king, but there were signs from the king. In other words, it'd be like uh, the, the emissary of Caesar bringing not only the, the word of the law, but bringing you a signed and sealed document presenting the law. I don't know what more evidence you would need than that. Now, you didn't even need that in Roman days. If Caesar said it, you heard it from someone who represents him, that was enough. But here, the author of Hebrews is going even further and saying it's not just that you heard it uh, from Jesus, who was the mediator of this covenant and the one who by himself purged our sins upon the cross, but, or that you even heard it from one of his emissaries, but it was confirmed by secondary testimony, or if you will, simultaneous testimony. This is a complicated word. This God also confirming, God also testifying. In fact, it's the only time it's used in the Bible, this exact phrase. It's a phrase that combines, a construction that combines the word sin, S-Y-N, or the prefix, if you will, in the Greek, alongside or with, and martyr, uh, the word to testify. says that God is testifying alongside them at the exact same time walking with them, testifying beside them to the same exact thing. Their testimony is with words. His testimony is with power. With power. Isn't that what it says? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. My friends, what excuse would you have? It isn't like Peter or Paul or whomever showed up in town and began to preach. And you heard a good argument. You heard a logical argument, a biblical argument. Maybe like the Bereans, you searched the Old Testament and and you looked hard into it and saw it does correspond to what was preached there. But I'm going to turn away from it. This author goes further to say you heard all of that And God also testified in your midst with power so that it was unmistakable. You have no excuse. Think about these things that are given. And by the way, uh, we can try to line them up individually. Signs, and then talk about wonders and miracles. But generally, uh, as these are used together, they're kind of used as a block quote to say all these amazing works and gifts of the Spirit that are given to testify and confirm the testimony of the gospel. So again, are there individual words here? Of course, they're right there for you to read. But again, they're used together to describe something. Much the same way Acts 22, Peter, excuse me, 2.22, Peter is speaking about the ministry of Jesus. He says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you. Notice, 
attested by God to you. Again, God testifying alongside Christ's work. In what way? By miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know. What was the, if you will, testimony that Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, incarnate amongst us? He did signs and wonders, miraculous works of power. This is the argument of Nicodemus, isn't it? We recognize there's something different about you. How could anyone else do the things that you do unless you were sent by God? Again, uh, the testimony is self-evident. When he's doing these works, these simeons, these, uh, these signs, if you will, that are so clear. When he's doing these wonders, taras, dunamis, works of power, miracles. When he's doing these things, it testifies self-evidently that Christ is the Son of God. He is God incarnate. For else could do the things that he does. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul states that these are the signs of apostolic authority. Here's what he says. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you. Well, what are these signs? He says, with all perseverance, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds, deeds of power, dunamis again, this idea of miracles, miraculous things accomplished. Now, there we see both it applied to Jesus' ministry and Paul's ministry, But there are too many places to turn in Acts, aren't there? Where miracles are done, more or less to convince people to listen to the message. Right? A a miracle is done, and then they say, oh, well, we've got your attention. Let us preach to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. These things weren't done by us, but done through the power of Jesus. Have you heard about him? They never missed an opportunity to preach the gospel. These gifts are a demonstration of power that the speakers themselves could not manufacture. That's the point. When you saw these works done, they were self-evident, if you will, in their very nature and power and impressiveness that God was at work amongst them. Now, my friends, we can think of all many of those sign gifts that were given, if you will, in the early church or to the early church. Uh, The gift of speaking in tongues, right, in a congregational setting was, uh, say someone comes in, and has a message that they have received. There is someone there that must be able to interpret that. Why is this important? There has to be some confirmation to the gift, right? So we have these sorts of things over and over again. Paul makes these rules very clear. There must be an interpreter there. But there are numerous examples given to us where miracles are done as signs, authoritative confirmations of the person's message uh, that they are speaking. Now, you may remember it's been over a year since we were in 1 Thessalonians. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says something interesting, doesn't he? Maybe you remember, he says, uh, when we came to you, we didn't preach with words. Now, at the time, we were very careful to say, yeah, he did, right? He did preach with words. Uh, that's how we preach, right? With the word of God, the proclaimed word. That's not what he means. He means we didn't preach with words only but with power. What does he mean? He says, before you dismiss my ministry, right? before you accept the argument, I'm some religious huckster who's been preying upon you, think back to what happened when I came amongst you and preached the gospel. It wasn't just words being proclaimed, but you saw confirmation of my ministry and message in works of power. 
Now, what were those works of power? Well, we don't exactly know. Paul doesn't lay it out fully. But one thing was seeing widespread acceptance of the gospel. That is a movement of God's power. But there may have been other accompanying signs that go along with what this says. In fact, there likely was because almost anywhere the gospel went, initially there were confirming signs and wonders and miracles of power accompanying it. So again, you get the idea. And this is the same message being applied to the recipients of this letter. Not only have you received the apostolic message, which is the message of the Son, but you have received it in confirmation by God Himself. In fact, you might notice this is a Trinitarian confirmation. Who sent the apostles out? Jesus. Who taught the apostles? Jesus. But, notice these works of power are gifts of the Spirit. And all done, as he says at the end, according to the will of the Father. So this is a Trinitarian work of God, as all the works of God are. Uh, Every work is a work of God. God can't be separated in that way. And so again, we need to recognize this, but here's a good evidence for this. The Father wills it, the Spirit empowers it, the Son sends them out. And that is the way this works. And so again... The question is this, you have received this message, first preached by the Son, now preached through apostles, demonstrated with confirming power by God. So we come back to the same question, don't we? How would you hope to escape if you neglect the only message given of any kind of authority like this that offers salvation? How could you escape the consequences of neglecting So great a salvation, attested by Christ, given to his apostles who testified to you, confirmed by power and wonders by God. What hope do you have of escaping if you neglect so great a salvation? I want to close by asking, how does this apply to us? We say, well, We didn't hear directly from Jesus. We didn't hear directly from the apostles. How does this apply to us? Well, first of all, I would argue that we're wrong. The testament of the apostles is collected for us here. We have the Word of God right here. We have this great privilege that these recipients did not have. We don't know how many letters in the New Testament uh, these believers had. Maybe none when this letter is written to them. This would be the first that they had, perhaps. We don't know what they had. But my friends, what excuse do we have? We have received the complete canon of Scripture. Everything God has intended for us to have, we have. All of it. All of it. The same message that they received. Testified to by the apostles. Well, if you want to say that it was Paul, I put my... Uh, Two cents in on that. But if you want to say it's Paul, okay. Are we without the testimony of Paul? No. We've got it right here in this book. In fact, we've got more of it than they likely had. Well, what if it was Peter? Do we have Peter's testimony in this book? Yes. And we could go on and on. James, right? We could go on and on. John. But at the end of the day, what are they testifying? The same message they received from the first preacher of this message, as the author says, Christ himself. 
We're receiving the same testimony they received through them. We're not hearing it, uh, if you will, verbally, although you could argue in a way we do when we are proclaiming the gospel in our churches. That we are reading their testimony as we are preaching and teaching the Word of God. But regardless, you are reading it. In your own home, you are reading their testimony. So you have everything that was given to them. And the author of Hebrews says, it's more than enough. In fact, to put it uh, even... Let me go one more step here really quick. He says that they received it confirmed with signs and wonders. You can read about that. So what would stand in your way other than unbelief? That's the only thing. So again, this author is saying to his, the people, the recipients in his day, I'm saying to us today, what hope do we have if we neglect so great a salvation? First testified to by Christ, then by those who received it from him, the apostles, who then recorded it here for us that we might receive the exact same gospel message. My friends, if they were without excuse, so are we. If they were without hope outside of the gospel, so are we. Now that is the point that is being made here. And people often will say things uh, in our own generation of like, well, if God wanted people to believe, He would do signs and wonders and miracles. Well, He did, and as you can see, that wasn't enough then. These are the very people this author is saying, you receive the testimony of the apostles with signs and wonders and works of power, and yet you're still possibly drifting away. Was it not enough? My friends, when you hear people today say, well, if God would just do a sign or work or, or, or miracle, a wonder, then I would believe, my friends, they're not telling the truth. They may not realize it. In fact, in that... Um, Thing that Jesus taught that is in the blog post, the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man cries out across the chasm, you know, can we send someone back so my brothers will hear the testimony? He says, if they didn't believe Moses, they won't even believe one risen from the grave. We fool ourselves, don't we, in thinking that our unbelief has good foundation. It doesn't. Our unbelief is rooted in one thing, and that it's rebellion against the holy and righteous God. Paul makes that abundantly clear in Romans chapter 1. All unbelief is basically founded there upon that foundation. Unbelief. Rebellion against God. And so, my friends, the author says, let me clear this up for you. You heard the apostolic teaching. You saw it confirmed with works of God, signs and wonders. He testified alongside. If you turn away, what hope? Of salvation is there for you? How will you escape the punishment if you neglect so great a salvation? I just earnestly believe, we haven't found a way to time travel, I assume. Uh, if this author was here today, he would say the same thing to us. You've received what they didn't have. You've received the complete canon of Scripture. It's in your home. Maybe you're like me and you've got Bibles in multiple rooms of your home. And if there aren't enough here, come here. There's a few in every pew. And you go to Walmart and buy one for like $10. So if you've heard the message, and if you've neglected that message and you turn away from it, what hope is there for you if you neglect so great a salvation? My friends, that is what we're called to proclaim. 
Not only the beauty and glory, majesty, and hope that's found in the gospel, but the consequences for those who refuse to hear it. They would proclaim, the early church would proclaim, there is hope in Christ, reconciliation, salvation, deliverance. Your sins, if you put your faith in Christ, your sins were purged on Calvary's tree by Christ in His own body. But outside of that, my friends, there is no hope. No hope. So do not neglect so great a salvation. My friends, that's the same message we're here to proclaim today.